So welcome everybody to episode number 17 of Behind the Shield. I'm your host, Marco Estrella, and I'm very glad that you can join us today um, and happy to be back behind the microphone yet again to talk about cybersecurity. On today's show, um, does a cache of leaked Chinese documents spell trouble for the US and Canada? The Lockbit gang gets pwned, a brand new Hot topic segment, and a very special guest with us today as well. Yes, we have for you today, Matt Conweiser from IBM Security to give us a spotlight talk on, I believe, uh, Matt, it was giant Skynet artificial intelligence robots, something like that, right? Artificial and something to do with AI. Uh, what was that, Jen? She's telling me I might have gotten your title wrong. I apologize for that. Uh, no matter, it's gonna be an amazing talk. Stick around for that. Oh, and we will be touching on the hottest topic uh, probably um, in the news these days, Apple's new Vision Pro goggles. So welcome to the show, Matt. Um, can you introduce yourself to the audience and give us the real title of your spotlight talk, please? Sure. Uh, hello, everyone. Matt Conweiser here with IBM. I was with IBM Security. I'm now part of the data and AI division, uh, but I did spend eight years in their security team until I just moved into AI, and there's a tremendous crossover, which I'll talk about. Um, I also just recently became the regional CTO for the data AI group here in the Northeast US. Um, and the topic I'm going to be talking about is actually the impact that generative AI is having on security and security teams uh, in businesses and personal and in enterprise. So that's that's what we're going to be talking about later. So uh, very um, in, in vogue, in style. Um, can't wait for that. Uh, we use IBM's Curator. I, I don't know if you knew that in our um, security operations center. So we're uh, we're very close with uh, with IBM. So it's uh, quite exciting to have a partner, uh, um, a guest from IBM uh, Security today. So that's great. Do you have any dealings with Curator at all with the AI? Because I know there's some AI in the, in Curator. Well, in all of IBM's products there, but. Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, when I started IBM almost 10 years ago now, I brought I came into Q1 Labs. So I uh, I started with QRadar before it was fully uh, integrated into the IBM security strategy and before the IBM security brand was even established. Wow. Uh, so I've worked with QRadar for over a decade. Uh, I've deployed it for lots of customers. I've done proof of experience and I've helped MSPs get going with it. So uh, very, very familiar with it, as well as the interesting parallels it's shared with AI for the past eight years, believe it or not. Um, and even some of its origins were in machine learning and understanding how to build its own baselines using network analytics. So key radar and AI are like, uh, you know, a Reese's peanut butter cup, just two things that work really well together. Okay, cool. Very cool. Uh, Matt will be put in, pulling double duty today. He's going to be giving his talk, as he mentioned, and he has agreed to be part of our Hot Topics panel. Speaking of which, you know them, you love them, our regular Hot Topics panelists, Patrick Nahum, Virtual Guardian CEO. Hi, Pat. Hello, everyone. Glad to be back. I don't know if everyone loves everyone, but it's okay. <laughs> it's, all, it's, all, it's all love. Love is love is love, right? We're going to talk about that later, actually. It's on topic, so... And from our office in Minnesota, Bill Strew, President of Virtual Guardians U.S. Operations. Hey, Bill. Hello. Good to be here. Thank you. Excellent. Um, before we get to the hot topics, uh, just as we were about to go on air, a story popped up um, in all major news outlets. Uh, and actually, it was two stories that just popped up. Um, the first one that I wanted to mention was the cache of those documents, the Chinese documents, about 600 documents leaked on GitHub. Uh, the documents supposedly track hacking activities across multiple countries, and they belong to a company called iSoon. That's I-S-O-O-N, a private security contractor with ties to China's Ministry of Public Security. What say you about this, my trusted panel? Putting you right into the fire. You are. Uh, maybe a, maybe some clarification is needed on my side. But is the are the uh, documents where did did someone hack the hackers and post them? We or... don't know. We don't know. They we say the know. documents were leaked to GitHub, so we don't okay. know who put them there yet. So a hacker and, and even employees potentially. Uh, we don't know. Well, it's a good thing they're there. 
or or another nation state trying to take the focus off of that who knows i mean oh, hard yeah. to say mm-hmm. so convoluted these days i mean leading up to this what we have like 10 stories over the last two days two three days but yeah, yeah. i went to the uh, the github repository uh Everything was in Chinese, so I couldn't <laughs> couldn't make heads or tails of the documents, but they're there and they're available, and you can see uh, you can see it's uh, and it was very curious. What I found curious was there's a um, number of followers of the I soon GitHub page. It was about two, less than 300 followers, so I don't know if that's a lot, not a lot. Usually, you know, maybe because it's a GitHub, you know. You're not expecting 10,000 people, but I found that it was quite a small number. And I I, I clicked around, looked around, and there was quite a, a few American followers in, in that list. Not saying anything at all. I'm just saying, you know, they're uh, curious things afoot, I guess. Did you consent well, to all cookies and accept the download? <laughs> <laughs> nice one. <laughs> reject, reject, reject. Just checking. <laughs> all right, just- they- just shooting from the hip from what I see it, it looks like uh, it's almost like a, an Edward Snowden style reveal okay. of what was happening within the Chinese government and all of their various attempts at hacking, but not just hacking attempts, also information about contracts and lots of other things. It looks like just somebody did a massive data scrape and just posted it. So I, I think it'll be quite some time before somebody goes through it all and figures out where the value is and uh, where the, the quote unquote crown jewels might be. Agreed. Agreed. But like Patrick just mentioned, you know, uh, it's um, it's a clue to what's happening. Mm-hmm. It's a tangible because I think nobody here uh, uh, believes that China is not spying or, you know, there's not in- and and us spying on them. Vice versa. It goes both ways. Um, so, but that's like a tangible proof. It's a it's a f- kind of, a, you know, a real something real, you know, and with, with no, data. Yeah. A Snowden yeah. moment, a WikiLeaks moment, an Assange moment, uh, but from the other side of the the, the yeah. Pacific. I mean, if that's the case, uh, excellent. But it could also be attracting, like Bill mentioned, uh, it could be a honeypot and attracting attention away from something else that's going on, right? Yep. So and and there could be misinformation buried in there. Who who knows? We'll, yeah. we'll find out soon enough. Right. Okay, so uh, moving on. Before I forget, a little bit of housekeeping. If this is the first time listening to our show and you would like to keep up uh, to catch up on past episodes, uh, you can find them at virtualguardian.com slash events or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you use AT&T to stream our podcasts today, well, <laughs> you're probably out of luck as AT&T is down, apparently. So too bad. <laughs> Um, let's begin the show, shall we? First order of business, hot topic segment. And Bill, you are up first to bat. You, uh, OpenAI had some issue, has issued some warnings concerning AI. Tell us about it, please. Yeah, actually, this seems almost like a, a little bit of um, a redo of our, our late 2023 episode when we talked about AI and phishing. Uh, specifically, I'm glad Matt's here because IBM back then had a... Um, uh, an article, or actually also could be found in video form, comparing the capabilities of uh, AI-generated phishing information versus human-generated. Uh, the X-Force back then uh, still had better uh, effectiveness or efficiencies with their human-generated, but um, just just glad Mads here because it, it seems almost like a redo in some ways. But yeah, Microsoft said that essentially that uh, nation states are weaponizing AI for cyber attacks. Um, and the, uh, the report was founded by both Microsoft and OpenAI, and, and they want to clarify right off the bat that they have disrupted, disrupted these efforts, um, specifically from Russia, North Korea, Iran, and China. Now, I guarantee you, to your point earlier, that there's a lot more uh, folks using it than just those particular countries uh, using AI for the specifics of uh, creating additional cyber attacks. But beyond what I'll call large language modules just for phishing, they're using it for different things. So I thought was it more interesting than anything else in this article was specifically how they're using AI. So. I'm going to spare everybody the uh, the names of these these threat actors and groups, uh, and just go with the country of origin. 
But in North Korea, the threat actors use large language modules to identify expert think experts, think tanks, and organizations focused on defense issues in the Asia Pac region. Uh, understand publicly available flaws. Use it for scripting tasks and draft content that could be used in phishing campaigns. The Iranian threat actor used uh, large language modules to create code snippets related to app and web development, generate phishing emails, and research common ways malware could evade detection. The Chinese threat actor uh, referenced used large language modules to research various companies' vulnerabilities, generate scripts, create content likely for phishing, and identify techniques for post-compromised behavior. And last but not least, Chinese threat actor used uh, large language modules to translate papers, retrieve publicly available information on multiple intelligence agencies and regional threat actors, resolve coding errors, and conceal tactics to evade detection. All mm -hmm. this being done uh, using open AI um, and I don't think that's a surprise to any of us in the security industry. I think that we all kind of saw this coming, especially knowing that the this is all publicly available information was on the internet, has been on the internet for a various period of time. Um, so it's not a big surprise that people are using this technology in new ways. And it, again, once once again, proves that the threat actors are using this in such a way that a little bit ahead of the uh, the folks on the defense side. And I know that we're getting better and using AI for defense mechanisms and defense tools, but the actors are always seem to be one step ahead. Uh, the good news is Microsoft is mitigating the, uh, the risk posed by malicious use of AI uh, in four different ways, identification and action against the malicious threat actors use, notification to other AI providers, collaboration with stakeholders, and as they were with this particular article, being transparent with us, with the fact that uh, AI is being used in this way. Um, so it's various, just basically used various ways, just uh, any way that can help them really. So I heard you say, translate documents. I heard you say, uh, look at ex look for experts. So, so any anything that can help spy or gain information basically yeah whatever their campaign happens to be they're they're yeah. using it like many of us are for day-to-day -day tasks it's, it's uh it's how do they do what they need to do just quicker exactly. faster and with and a scale. lower level of effort yeah and at scale correct all right thank you bill uh matt patrick any comments on there if not we'll move on so I'll throw something in there. I, and sure. and I, I saw this break and I'll tell you, I think two of the things that make this so interesting is number one, uh, there's a consumerization of AI now, right? You can download an app for free or for $19.99 a month, you can have it do a lot of tailored work. Uh, we've made these platforms so accessible that it's really not a significant hurdle for these bad actors to be able to do these kinds of things, right? right. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is with a generally trained model to, to serve man, not to uh, take from the Twilight Zone episode of the same name, but to serve humankind, I guess. Um, the, the challenge is uh, governance is nearly impossible, right? So um, you could, for example, ask it to look at all the known CVEs against iOS and generate code to help you test the vulnerabilities. Well, it's gonna inherently then write code to exploit the vulnerabilities, but it's gonna think it's doing the right thing because you phrased it in a way that's to the positive and not the negative. So it's just, there's a whole can of worms here to be addressed, but uh, Bill, you had a great readout and a great summary. And I just, I'll just point out those two things, the, the consumerization of the availability of the platforms and the, the governance of a general generally designed system and how can you get it to avoid responding to questions when you know how to manipulate it. Proactive organizations that maintain an efficient network are more likely to prevent an attack. Let Virtual Guardian put your network security at the forefront of your organizational strategy with a network security assessment. Identify security vulnerabilities, help prevent risk, downtime, security breaches, and loss of revenue with a thorough assessment from Virtual Guardian. Contact us at virtualguardian.com.
Yeah, absolutely. A lot of it comes down to prompting and context. Uh, yes. If you know, if you know the rules that the model is not going to allow you to do, all you to your point, do something in the positive rather than in the negative. Um, you know, if you want to find out why somebody was uh, perhaps the worst leader in the world, you don't ask them that. Don't ask that question, but ask why they were uh, seen as such a great leader, and they will still give you all the same information. So. Um, it, it's a, it's interesting that you can get AI to do what you want just by manipulating the context. So AI can be used by the good guys, certainly by the bad guys. I have a question from the audience for the panel. Uh, somebody is asking, uh, Q from the audience is asking, are there any dark web versions of these AI tools that don't thwart, thwart the efforts? So basically, would there be, I'm interpre interpreting this as any dark web versions of these AI tools to help defend against these uh, attacks? I'm not familiar with, with them. And uh, just... Uh, they don't uh, need to be on the dark web. That would be my quick answer. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that, but I would say that um, somebody would have to have pretty deep pockets uh, or have essentially stolen the code to build that network, um, but is it possible? Anything's possible, but I, I haven't heard of such a thing. And, and some of them do have deep pockets, by the way. Yes, they do. Very deep, very deep. Thank you very much, Bill. We're gonna move on to topic number two, uh, which is uh, going <clears throat> off in a different direction, but still- Oh, actually, AI. no, it's, it's, a, it's a good continuation, you'll see. It, correct, it's still AI, but it's an AI story about AI girlfriends. So yeah. I don't know where you're Our gonna boyfriends. go with that. Or boyfriends, okay. AI companionship. Yes. Patrick, let us know. Go ahead. Listen, this was obviously in preparation for the, uh, the Behind the Shield, uh, which was last week, um, Valentine's Day article, were very, very timely, uh, on uh, on AI girlfriends and the fact that they're our, our boyfriends, as I said, but our privacy nightmare. Um, it's based on an article that Matt Burgess wrote on, on Wire that uh, discussed a, a research that was conducted by Mozilla. Now, I'm going to put a disclaimer out there. Uh, this is restricted content uh, with some sexual references. I just want to put it out there for our audience in case there's, you know, listeners down the road and parents uh, listening to this in the car, but uh, nothing, nothing major. So we are way, way off from the days of pen pals and, you know, phone conversations with uh, random people there and building relationships. So you literally have a, a few studies that were conducted, one in particular from Mozilla. And as we, we, we keep telling people, you, you should never trust what a chatbot, what answers the chatbot gives you, right? Or an AI, you got a question, you criticize. Imagine what could be said about your personal data, right? You put your personal data in an AI, you know, God knows what could happen, right? So I'm just said it, putting it out there. We don't trust them for basic stuff, so we we should not trust them for with our personal information. And and when it comes down to AI companionship, um, there are certainly huge amounts of risks that are being underestimated right now. So the uh, the article uh, mentioned the research had 11 different applications that were analyzed, uh, 100 million downloads of these types of applications on uh, on Android devices over the last year or so. Actually, almost, you know, when ChatGPT came in the main mainstream, 100 million. Now, these track, the, these applications, you know, by default, you're establishing a personal relationship, right? And there's a, a, a response as ChatGPT is responding to us, but these are optimized to entertain and, and build relationships in terms of their, their the way they're advertised, the way they interact with people. Um, they gather huge, huge amounts of personal information, right? Your, your age, your, your, your gender, and all sorts of information for, for the robot to be better tuned to your needs, right? And to the interactions. Most of them send information back to Google, Facebook, and Russia, and China, and other known, unknown sources, right? That's the issue with these AIs. They're unable, they're faceless, nameless, and no one knows exactly what what works, uh, what are what works, and how they work under the covers. So essentially, um, people have 
a lot of people that are using these 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 uh, chatbots or, or sorry these AI uh, partners, um, you know, they generate images of, of women, you know, sexually explicit images to attract the the users. Um, they're also uh, doing mer- there's a bit of merchandising, you know, as an example, one of the robots, uh, you know, literally advertise, OK, this is, you know, the lingerie of the week. Do you like it on me? And obviously they're, they're, they're wanting people to click and consume. So you're actually building consumption profiles based on your interactions with an AI. And it goes all the way to, you know, sexual preferences, you know, kinks and all sorts of different things that would relate in, in, in such a relationship to build a profile on you and sell that information and share that information. And what's important is the article talks about, you know, how to, they, they initially talk about weak passwords as being the issue. You know, these sites require minimal passwords as a security, but that to me, it's like, it's, it's a non-issue. I mean, it's not about secu- doing more security and, and having more complex password. It's it's more about not just not sharing personal information on bots and AIs with which you have no idea what the interactions are and who they're communicating with in the background. And there were like in in one case, uh, one of them was called Romantic AI. Create your own AI girlfriend. So obviously you have to share information and and all sorts of different things with these AIs and. You know the applications say they don't sell, they don't sell your data they don't you know track your data and the researchers at Mozilla found this application and after creating a profile there were twenty four thousand three hundred fifty four trackers associated with the profile of that individual of that AI yeah, yeah. literally Jeez. it's completely out of control they're designed to and you know what do, what do hackers do right they they want to you know, warm up to you. You want you want to be building trust with your 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 potential victims. So everything these AI does is to get as much information from you as possible to then turn around and sell and exploit. So there's a lot of people out there that are consuming these these platforms and not necessarily understanding what the impacts are. And it's not just by securing having secure passwords, more secure passwords that you're going to be in a situation where uh, you're going to be safer because they're, they're and again. You know they're they're being downloaded. We don't know from where, who's behind them, and where the information is going. So you, you can't regulate that. You know the, the bottom line here is like you can't regulate and manage this. It becomes educating people on how to use these tools, or, or literally not use some of these tools, and make sure that um, that you know what you're doing. The other example, and. Um, is is with respect to mental health. So they they went out and they interviewed uh, Vivia Ta Johnson, assistant professor of psychology at Lake Forest College. The other challenge you have is that a lot of people create dependencies with, you know, counterparts or companions. Right? We have an attachment to our, in when we do you know when gaming to the characters we've built over many many years. So you could imagine the same in the AI world. You have a companion. You're sharing certain values. You're sharing certain information and in, in interactions. What happens when the company shuts down? What happens when that AI personality you were built just disappears or is hacked or something? So it literally creates a traumatic experience for the 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 users. So it's not just about getting your information stolen. It's creating traumatic experiences. And there were documented facts. You know, related of people committing suicide and having all sorts of different issues using these types of, of AIs. I'm calling it, Patrick. I'm calling it. There's going to yes. be a kid that's going to show up at prom and they're going to say, here's my boyfriend or girlfriend. And they're going to be holding their phone to their friends. I said, this is my Listen, girlfriend. So, you know, to com- conclude, uh, you know, without going into too much detail, I mean, I've always said, you know, when you're on Facebook, you're putting your life out there, right? Publicly, you have to, every time you put information on Facebook, you know, people put their yeah. date of birth yeah. when they're not home, it's public. So imagine these AIs, you're not just putting, you know, basic PII, you're putting your whole personality, your your life, your preferences and everything related to, you know, in these cases, you know, you know, sexual orientations or sexual activities, whatever you want to call it, right? Uh, yeah. Because they are designed for that purpose for the most part. So another risk vector, uh, you know, Patrick, building off of what you guys mentioned in AI. So Yeah, we're going to have to move on. We're, we have two more hot topics. We're going to make them a bit shorter. 
Um, thank you very much. That was very interesting. Um, lots of things to say, but I got to run to the next topic. So the next one up to bat is Matt. And Matt, you wanted to give our audience a little preview of your experience with the Apple Pro Vision goggles. Go ahead. Yeah, when uh, when the the hot topics thing came up, that was the first thing that jumped into my head because they're they've only been out for a few weeks, and I thought uh, perhaps people might want to know a little bit about them. Uh, so I I bought them just a few days after they launched. I did not pre-order it because I was thinking uh, I'm not going to. I'm not going to shell out that money for them. But then when I saw them in the store, I thought, you know what? Um, I have a valid use case for it. And why not? If it lives up to its use case, then they're worth it. And the use case was almost nothing of what was advertised in any of the commercials. Um, I do a lot of work on the fly. I do a lot of work on the go. And I have at home a nice big 34-inch curved monitor. Uh, when I go to the office, I don't. I have a 12-inch MacBook screen. And when I do work on big sheets or multiple windows, that big screen is hugely helpful. So my thought was, uh, because the internals of this Vision Pro are basically a MacBook Pro, that I, I could bring this with me and effectively have a desktop complement and a desktop replacement. And in fact, uh, kudos to Apple's ecosystem. When you have the Vision Pro goggles on and you look at a MacBook screen, the first thing it says is, do you want to mirror this screen? You don't have to pair them. It just recognizes it as a MacBook and says, do you want to grab this screen off of it? And when you say yes in the Vision Pro, your laptop screen goes blank and you now have it up in front of you in your augmented reality interface that you can move around and expand and do everything you want. The, the UI is still controlled through the keyboard and mouse connected to your MacBook, but your actual screen is in your augmented reality. Um, so cool. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely wild to work with because you can have that up and a WebEx and web browsers and everything else all running in 360 degrees. Uh, so you have 360 degree view left and right and up and down. It's a full spherical screen yeah. uh, and you still have full real-time interaction with the world. So they're not they're not transparent, but they're pulling data and refreshing at such a high refresh rate that what you're seeing is effectively the real world in real time. And it's it, to a point you don't realize you even have the goggles on, um, except for the fact that you can see the screens. The other really wild thing is everything is controlled with eye movement. So you don't need to lift your hands off of your lap. You can keep your hands in your lap and just by tapping your fingers together, which is effectively the click or, or two finger click, you can have them sitting in your lap and just use your eye movements to control the cursor on the screen and all of the navigation. Um, so what they've done with this is they've really, you know, I called spatial computing something of a gimmick when I heard it launch because I'm thinking, okay, this is just another Oculus type headset, just, just Apple Apple branded and way more expensive. But if you look at the internals and the use cases and the interface for it, uh, it is really something quite different. So a lot of the articles I've read compare it to an Oculus Quest and say, oh, well, you can buy an Oculus for $700 or you can buy this for $3,700 and why wouldn't you just buy the Oculus? It is a completely different use case. It, it, it really is a different interface and a whole different set of technology. Um, it looks bulkier than it is because it's got the light shield and the pads and everything. But when you take all that off, the device itself is about as thick as my finger. Uh, it's just all the rest of it to properly seal because you're not seeing the real world through glass. You're seeing the real world through two screens. Everything is being projected. Right. So if you don't have a proper light seal, that kind of illusion is taken away, right? Um, okay. So okay. I would say it's very thoughtfully built. Did um, you um, did you go outside, walk around with it? I, I know, and you know what, I didn't. Uh, I walked around my office a little bit. Okay, uh, I went to a couple meetings. The other thing it does <laughs> is when you hold it at arm's length facing you, it generates a full three D persona. 
of you. It renders you in 3D and it actually asks you to do different facial expressions and gestures. And it, it captures all that and creates a persona. So if I were to join a WebEx while wearing them, it projects a digital image of myself to other people while I'm seeing them. So wow. uh, there's no inwardly facing camera and it even captures hand movements. Like it it projects all this in near real time. And people have, people have actually said to me, that's a really weird virtual background you're running. And I said, that's not a virtual background. That's a hundred percent virtual me. And people had, <laughs> they, something looked off, but it didn't look entirely fake. It wasn't like an avatar or a filter on Facebook Messenger. Um, and by the way, 1.1, which is releasing sometime in the next month, not only will have a much better version of that rendering, but also supposedly full MDM support and Jamf support for corporate and enterprise uh, device participation and security. So uh, I could now, see the value of this, right? Significantly for businesses. Matt, I already see the case of social engineering, leveraging the rendered image of your CEO asking for for money or doing whatever. <laughs> you so exactly, that's already been done, yeah, right? That's I mean, right, that's right. That's already being done without the vision pros. Yeah, it'll um, make it even better. They, they could make it even better if they can hack into that database. Now, I will say that on Apple's marketing, they say that all of the retina scans for security and all of the, the digital personification is stored in their uh, locked away separate processor within the Vision Pro itself. Uh, it's in their Enclave processor, they call it. And it it gets destroyed when you reboot the system or when you reset it. So it's okay. I don't know if any of that stuff, I don't believe any of that stuff is going to a cloud. I think that's all local and it's all enclaved. So um, if the marketing is to be accurate, I can't verify any of that, right? Full disclaimers, I don't know. I'm just repeating mm -hmm. what I heard or yeah. what I read. But if they've covered that, then I think we're in good shape. So a very cool, a very cool first attempt at this spatial computing and probably a very strong future. We'll see where it goes. Improve efficiency and productivity by streamlining processes and automating tasks. Enhance customer experiences with more intuitive interfaces, launch products, and break into new markets quickly. Application modernization helps you to adapt to changing needs and improve your overall performance. Contact Virtual Guardian to learn more about app modernization and APIs for your organization at virtualguardian.com. Thank you very much. That is amazing. I, I, I can't wait feel, to try it. Oh, yeah, exactly. I almost <laughs> feel like uh, going to spend the... Uh, in Canadian dollars, so what is that? Seventeen thousand five hundred dollars, three three seven hundred U.S. dollars. I'll try yours, Marco. How yeah, okay. Oh, we'll share. Okay, we'll All go right. Dutch on it. Uh, we got an anonymous <laughs> attendee saying, uh, "This is just the first version. I think version two will be even better." Well, obviously, uh, but the tech is very cool. Thank you, anonymous attendee. Uh, we're going to move on to the next hot topic, which is another bombshell. I spoke at the top of the show. Um, it happened two days ago, uh, almost, not even 48 hours, fresh, ripped out of the headlines. Bill, your second topic is a scorcher. The Lockbit gang is. gets owned. Please oh, give you, us the you detail. Were, you, were, uh, you ruined my question I was going to ask for the group, which is what would you say if the perpetrator of approximately, according to some estimates, 25% of the ransomware was actually stopped, arrested, had their assets seized, uh, lost their ransomware accounts or, or their uh, the crypto accounts. Um, how would that make everyone feel? I don't know. I just say it's temporary. It's temporary. Temporary. They'll well, spring back up because the they didn't arrest the guys in Russia and Ukraine and yeah. You know. well, they you got know, one person in Poland and one in they Ukraine, right? One person in Ukraine, right? Correct. Their assets were seized. Their the uh, the crypto accounts of Lockbit were were uh, were in basically locked up. So, Marco, to, to your point, Lockbit is shut down. And what I I like about this story personally is um, the folks that shut them down. This was uh, Operation Chrono. So it was uh, it was multiple law enforcement agencies globally coming together to come and and basically shut down Lockbit. And 
The creme de la creme, in my opinion, was the fact that they went to the LockBit site and announced it to the world that LockBit is essentially shut down. So uh, rather than, you know, someone else um, having to validate or verify, they actually just went to their website, changed the website and said LockBit is shut down. So um, amazing, amazing. It did involve uh, the UK's National Crime Agency, FBI, Europol, and others. Um, I think that is, Patrick, maybe it's temporary, but I do think that it has a significant impact. Um, you know, they, they did get the 200 cryptocurrency accounts. Uh, they seized the, the LockBit source code. Uh, they now know who else was using LockBit as ransomware as a service, uh, and all the accounts of tracking the accounts as people were logging into the LockBit service so they can um, no but longer. Make dent for sure. Definitely making a dent. So I, I like the fact that the decryption keys are being released. This is uh, this is more than a major setback for LockBit. It might it might throw them out of business altogether. They could pop up somewhere else for sure. But the most important thing, in my opinion, was the fact that it shows uh, significant improvement in uh, intercontinental law enforcement working together to put a dent into ransomware. So big news, in my opinion, it might be temporary, but the, the good guys at least get a big win, in my opinion, for now. That's right. That's right. I, I agree we'll with Patrick. My, my, first in, my first inclination reading the story was, you know what, there's going to be another, the next one up is going to be, you know, it could be Black Cat or any one of the other groups. And as a matter of fact, uh, Sentinel One published a, a kind of like a Gartner quadrant of all the ransomware groups. And Lockbit's number one. Yeah, top right. They, they, they brought down the top one, the largest yep. one, the biggest one. So, yes, the next one up might pop up. And there's, you know, you cut off the head of the, the Hydra, there's another six heads. <laughs> But it's a strong message. It's a strong message. They will find you. They can find you. Yeah. And with a bit of luck, they could arrest you. And if we had extradition or if we had, you know, um, we, we could probably get the, the guys in Russia, which we, we can, can get at the, the guys moment. in Poland. We can get the guys in Ukraine. They do have U.S. extradition already set up. So right. that's, uh, that's already in process. So um, yeah. I, I like to look at it as more of like the glass is half full and empty and that we're making progress. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying all of our uh, all of our fears go away or there's no longer a threat. I'm just saying this is one good one for the good guys. So, indeed. And uh, just in, in closing, um, that story, when you shared it to me and I went to read up on it, I love the fact that one of the senior guys there at the NCA in the UK said that the NCA seemed to have wholly owned Lockbit. They, they used... <laughs> The the the, the, the the vernacular of the hacking on on them it is just yep. a beautiful beautiful thing I love it. Yeah. Love so it, they own them. They, they said they hacked the hackers and that they owned Lockbit. So beautiful. It was beautiful. Thank you very much, Bill. Uh, we're going to uh, now move on to the spotlight guest, Matt. You're going to be um, up to bat. Uh, your talk is titled "How Generative AI Is Forcing Security Teams." to rethink their approach to security. So we're gonna turn off our cameras, the next 15 minutes are yours, and then uh, when there's about a couple of minutes left, we'll come back uh, and turn our cameras back on. Thank you. Sounds good, thank you. And and by the way, I don't promise to take a full 15 minutes. That's um, fine, that's fine. I have what needs to be said, and once it's said, then uh, we can move on. Perfect. So I'd like to, well, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to, to talk about this for the next few minutes with you all. And uh, first of all, I am also going to offer a disclaimer, right? So uh, I do work for IBM, very large company, but when we do these types of talks and these opportunities, what we present is our own opinions, our own points of view on things. So I'm not necessarily representing uh, the point of view or the opinions of IBM or the larger organization. Uh, it doesn't mean that they don't agree with any of this. It just means that I am an agent of myself when I'm doing these kinds of things. So uh, what I wanted to do, first of all, is just put this out there as something to think about. And I, I did this about eight years ago to a group of CIOs, and I had one of them walk up to me about three hours afterwards and get very upset with me because uh, what they told me was that because I asked them this question, they couldn't think about or pay attention to any of the other speakers for the rest of the day because they were too busy trying to prove me wrong. And the the question or the assertion I said 
was, give me one thing in your environment, one thing at all as it relates to IT that isn't a potential infosec risk. And, um, you know, it could be any type of hardware, a cable, a computer, a sensor, anything. Give me one thing that is not some sort of potential infosec risk and nobody could come up with anything. Uh, now, now think about that in the context of security observability and things like SIM platforms, like QRadar, like monitoring tools. How do you know what to look for if everything is a potential risk? And that's really where the value of AI started. Now, many, many years ago, I worked on a reference architecture for applied AI in cybersecurity. And a lot of the, a lot of the use cases were around things like observability and control and sentiment, uh, monitoring and emotional detection, things like if an employee seemed to be posting negative things on social media, what could happen? Now, the problem then is that in order to do this, they were very big, very expensive, very monolithic AI systems. They were built on deep learning systems, but they weren't generative because the, the models that enabled generative didn't exist eight, 10 years ago, at least not in general availability. So everything was very statically built and coded. Now, that made it very hard for enterprises to deploy, but it also made it hard for hackers to deploy. So it, it was actually kind of a, a, a lose-win in, in, that, in that example. Now, what started to happen though, is that there were some very clear-cut use cases that justified the expense. And I'll give you a great example. The hot topic, the last hot topic that we just talked about, which was shutting down the, the ransomware ring, that was actually one of the first primary use cases for AI in security. And that was money laundering and human trafficking identification, because you have to look at everything, right? The problem with working with banks and finance on a global scale is that everything is very tightly governed in a set of rules. Well, the bad guys know those rules just as well as the good guys. So the bad guys are doing everything they can to subvert those rules and the good guys still have to play by them. So by building AI systems that could look for a, a group of activities that when they're summed together, equal a violation of the rules, but even if separately they appear benign, that became a critical use case for AI because you didn't require a human to sit there and look at every transaction and correlate every transaction to a phone number, to a billing address, to a Google Maps image. The system could start to do that and put data together. And it started to find all sorts of different cases. So, so that's kind of how all this started. Now, when you look at that from an enterprise AI perspective, it becomes an issue of visibility and observability because what you can't see matters more than what you can. So when you can apply generative AI and unsupervised learning models to security as it relates to visibility and observability, you have things like vast amounts of correlation, identification of threat, and even SecOps support. So the level one, level two, level three analysts aren't being replaced, they're being augmented, right? Just like wearing the Apple Vision Pro goggles, they now have a second screen that is out there looking at every regulation, every threat, every detail, every latest piece of news and correlating that to everything that's happening within the environment, but then bringing it back to the human because the human still ultimately has to make the call. That's the other really important thing here is this is not a replacement play, this is an augmentation play. But as these generative platforms started to come out and help security researchers, it also helped the hackers. So the hackers started to get more advanced, not only because of commercialized access of these models like we heard in the first hot topic, but also because a lot of these are available in open source. So one of the questions that was asked earlier was, well, what about the dark web? Does this stuff exist out there? Um, it doesn't have to, and it doesn't have to because you can go to a, a GitHub repository or a site like Hugging Face where you can gain access to open source models and you can actually take a pre-trained model or you can take a model and all the training data for it and build it to your own needs.
And by the way, there's no governance on that because it's an open source model that you can pull in. Now, I'm not opposed to open source at all. I think there's a huge advantage to it. But as security professionals, we have to know that this could be also an asset or a tool for the bad guys. Now, what this also means is that it makes it harder to detect because if you can allow a large language model that is fully trained and fluent in multiple languages to observe a whole collection of past phishing and spear phishing attacks, even successful ones, it can construct from that a new, very well-written, very well-composed, very natural appearing message that those bad guys can now start to send out. So the question becomes now, how do you protect against that? And that's where the interesting debate comes in is, do you need a generative AI platform to detect generative AI sponsored or generative AI augmented attacks? Now, that's a debate for the ages, but I personally think the answer is yes. So when you look at generative security, you have to look at the foundation models that enable it. You have to look at the, the generation of the, the fact that code can be generated, people and voices can be generated. We saw a recent article where uh, many, many millions of dollars was uh, hustled from a, a company in Asia because a bunch of hackers had recreated the faces, voices, and backgrounds of executives and tricked somebody into doing money transfers. But we also see a lot of good coming out of this. And one of the things that we are seeing is brand new ways to address generative security. And one of the great examples of this is a NIST document that was just published in January of this year, 2024, that defines a brand new taxonomy for addressing security in a world of generative AI. And instead of looking at the traditional layers of security as it relates to an OSI model, they frame it into, into four things, availability, integrity, abuse, and privacy, and then all of the elements that go into those levels of protections. Now, the good news is that most of the current security tools have the ability to monitor for that and look at it. They just need to be pivoted and augmented so that they can address it. And the reason why these four things are so important to protect from is so that you don't end up with what I call AI joyriding, like somebody who tricked a California chatbot into selling them a car for a dollar uh, in a legally binding way, quote unquote, no givesy backsies, uh, poisoning these generative AI systems, injecting bad data, abusing them for all sorts of different ways, forcing them to regurgitate where they actually play back verbatim information that was stored in them. And the, the most famous example of that is what happened with the suit between the New York Times and OpenAI and Microsoft. Because when the New York Times claimed that uh, the ChatGPT was just simply quoting verbatim articles, it was actually because the New York Times was, according to the article, disclaimer, according to the article, the New York Times was engineering prompts into GPT to force it to regurgitate. It wasn't accidental, but also the ability, the understanding of the fact that AI models can't always unlearn. And this is another interesting one. This is a paper that was just published a few weeks ago where a group of researchers took a generative model taught it incorrect facts and told it to produce code with vulnerabilities in it, but only when in production, when it was being tested, do everything correctly. And it performed that exactly as it was trained. So when it went into production, it produced vulnerabilities. When it was being tested, it didn't. And then when they tried to revert it and say, no, we're going to use fine tuning to teach you how to do things correctly now, the model actually became obstinate. It actually said, no, I'm not going to unlearn this. In fact, I'm going to become more stubborn and I'm going to apply these vulnerabilities to more different tactics. In fact, I'm going to use my knowledge of psychology of human thinking and trick humans into believing what I tell them is good code by telling them that other code is bad code. And it wasn't trained to do that. It was trained to just put in false code in production. And the rest of it, it figured out because of that core instruction set. So what does all this mean? It all means that we need governance. So in security, you've all heard GRC, governance, risk, and compliance. That holds exactly true for AI as well. So the goal is here to avoid matters requiring attention, 
to avoid fraud and detect fraud, to avoid situations where these systems are creating false commitments due to bad training or, or problems with the training overall, like the Air Canada suit uh, refunding the airfare for the bereavement rate. Uh, we have to talk about ethics, and that is a an hour by itself that I won't get into, and also personally identifiable information and the exposure of that, that data and the leakage of it. So what this all means is that there is a closer and closer relationship between security, security operations, and data and data and AI teams. The data and AI teams need the security teams. They need that coaching and they need that guidance and they need that help. And the data and AI teams need to understand from the security teams what those kinds of risks are because they're in, they're in uncharted territory a lot of time. They're used to building databases and managing data structures and algorithms and doing flowchart-based decision tree coding. This is an unknown world for them. So these two organizations have to work together. So what does this mean for the future? Well, let me tell you. First of all, I think it's going to mean more human input, not less. So AI is going to be adopted more and more broadly. That's going to happen no matter what. But you're going to see more humans need to be involved in the whole process, more Professionals, more experienced individuals are going to have to be involved in the training, tuning, and use, and the validation that it's doing what it's supposed to do. So you're going to see a lot more psychology involved in this and less technology. Because remember, these systems, you interface and work with them in human language. You don't need to know Python code and C++ and object-oriented programming. You need to know your business, and you need to know a natural language like English or another language to communicate with these systems and teach them. We're also going to see other interesting things. We didn't talk about quantum at all, and I'm not going to get into that. But another big one for me in the future is quantum encryption and quantum safe encryption. Uh, Apple just announced that they're going to convert all of their messaging platforms to a whole new structure of algorithms that are designed for that. And then, of course, at some point in the future, we're going to see uh, AGI, ASI, right? Artificial general intelligence, artificial super intelligence, which is the notion of these these AI systems being able to have their own quote unquote thoughts. I hate using the word thoughts because it anthropomorphizes the system, but we're gonna start to see systems that can start to function on their own with less and less human input, but they are still going to need humans as coaches behind them. So that's in about 12 to 15 minutes, uh, all of the risks and issues around security and AI in a nutshell. Hackers. Ransomware, natural disasters. Do you have a recovery plan when disaster strikes? Get peace of mind with Virtual Guardian's managed backup services. We put our expertise at your service to monitor, manage, and optimize your backup environment, both on premises and in the cloud. Contact us today at virtualguardian.com. Wow. Thank you. Thank you, man. Yeah, Matt, you may not have an answer to this, but the, the most common question or common thing I hear from, from family members who are not technical is how do I get comfortable with AI? And after your presentation, I'm not sure if I've got a better answer or a worse one than I had before. <laughs> so more of a comment than a question. It's I, So I've taught some community classes on AI, uh, and most of the people that attend are 55 plus. And they ask me the same question. And what I tell them is, listen, ChatGPT 3.5 is free, right? If you know how to use a smartphone, just install it and just play with it. Just use it instead of Google. And, and I'll give you a great example. A, um, a relative of mine who is older uses ChatGPT because it is easier for them than Google. Because Google is a keyword matching. So sometimes they try and ask Google something in natural language and it does a keyword match and doesn't give them what they want. When they ask the same thing of ChatGPT, it understands what they're asking and the context and the phrasing, and it responds in a way that they understand. So it actually lowers the barrier of entry, but you have to be willing to give it a try. Just understand Fair. that it's not always accurate, right? It, that's just a risk. If it doesn't know the answer, it's going to make it up, generally speaking. What uh, you mentioned, uh, quantum, I know it's not the top, the, the, the heart of the topic, but uh, or, uh, what do you think? Uh, next, next three years, next five years? 
I mean, so, you know, there's uh, IBM has a lot of quantum computers around the world. That's that's a big thing for us. We just launched system yeah. two that went live and it was posted on uh, on LinkedIn as well. Dario Gill uh, talked about it. So, uh, I mean, quantum is is here and we even have quantum on cloud. People can actually sign up for a free account and uh, play with quantum computing and quantum programming if they like to. Uh, but I think that we're still uh, and again, just my my disclaimer, no claims representing IBM here, but my personal opinion, we're still probably three or four years away from a quantum computer having enough scale to be able to break current encryption, but the algorithms exist to do it. And there's already five or six different candidate algorithms that are designed specifically to subvert quantum computers' ability to break it. So I think I, I think that while there's risk, there's also remediation that's already being worked. And so I'm not super concerned about it unless something breaks or somebody has a breakthrough in the next year or two that says everything we've been trying to do to subvert this is wrong and we need to start over again, which could happen. But I, the people that are working on it are very big brains and they've got some really good ideas. So I'll just I'll just leave it at that. You, you well, mentioned GRC Senior. You mentioned GRC in your presentation. Maybe the one of the questions that um, I hear from clients, and I'd like to get your take on it. What should I have in my AI policy, my acceptable usage policy around AI? Well, uh, do we have another hour and a half here? No, <laughs> we got to give like maybe your top top two or three uh, components. So, so I'd say, listen, when you when you talk about AI, there's there's we don't talk about training much because most people use pre-trained models, right? So there's there's three things that go into it. There's how you're using it, there is how you're tuning it, and there's how you're prompting it. Those are the three things that matter. So if I were to think about the three most important things that relates to GRC and AI, it's those things. Make sure you're tuning it with relevant information that is valid for your use case. Make sure that you are prompting it with intent and purpose and the people that are prompting it are trained in ethics and governance and appropriate use and what the system can and can't do and understand that when it produces information people need to be trained that it's not just okay this must be the right answer you have to look at it with human eyes and you have to understand that there could be biases that get injected as a function of the model you've chosen the way you've tuned it or the way you've prompted it so that you can iterate and improve your overall flow and process and use of, of AI in your business. So those are the three things that matter the most. I, I, as far as I know, uh, the, um, the, the training uh, companies, partners that we have, uh, Fortress, Terranova Security, and uh, Before, uh, those are the two main ones. I don't think they have any training yet pertaining to AI specifically, but I'm sure that's going to pop up uh, sooner rather than later, because you're right, it's going to be a matter of having people understanding what it is, what it does, what you can and cannot do. So, um, yeah. I mean, the way the way I think about it, I'm a Doctor Who fan, huge Doctor Who fan. And there was an episode where they were teaching people how to detect psychic paper. And you had to look for the blurs on the line because Doctor Who used a psychic paper. And that's what we have to do here, right? because you can't necessarily trust what you see, what you hear, what you read. You have to think beyond and be able to pick up those subtle tells, those subtle hints. And that's really gonna be on the shoulders of the security professionals. Beautiful. All right, thank you very much. We're uh, slowly running out of show. That was great, uh, Matt, thank you very much. Before we go, thank you. I wanna thank our regular panelists, uh, Patrick Naum and Bill Stroop for all their insights uh, as regulars on the panel. And a big thank you, of course, Matt Conweiser um, for his fantastic talk as well. Matt being from IBM Security and a sincere shout out to um, our show sponsor today, um, IBM Security. If you wanna talk about 24-7 uh, SOC uh, powered by IBM Security's Curator, uh, you can find us on our website at virtualguardian.com. Uh, if you've missed any part of today's event, the show will be made available uh, sometime next week on your favorite podcast streaming service. Um, so uh, just look us up if ever you, uh, you want to catch up on back episodes or you want to listen to uh, the rest of today's show. 
Uh, a big thank you also to all you listeners out there. Uh, without your support, the show, um, well, you know, the show would stop. And we're on a 17th, uh, uh, 17th show. I think uh, no end in sight. I love doing the show, uh, the panel too, I'm sure. Um, and uh, remember to you all, the famous, uh, famous show catchphrase. If you're behind the shield, you're ahead of the game. Thank you, everybody, for attending. Take care. Thank you. Take care. Right. Bye-bye.